0: All right you guys can go and have a seat <clears throat> It is good to see all of you guys. Uh, welcome. my name is grant i 'm one of the pastors here. Um, I will do my best to not use the word propitiation in this sermon today um, so but I do hope you do the well, and that word is coming later this semester. I will warn you but uh Yeah, We're we're glad that you're here with us this morning. Every time that we get to gather together on Sunday is just an awesome opportunity uh, to be able to worship the Lord, uh, to come together, be able to encourage each other, uh, to learn his word better, and to just be better equipped to be able to live in a way that pleases him. So, um, I know I'm always excited for Sunday mornings because it's an opportunity for me to hang out with a couple hundred of my favorite people uh, and, and worship God together. Uh, Now, I know that many of you guys are new here to H2O. This might be your first or second Sunday with us. So before I dive into our sermon, there's actually a few things I want to share just about what we believe at our church that are going to be very essential uh, for forming the way that we do things here. And uh, the first thing is just that we believe that God is alive and active in our world today. Okay, we don't we don't think that God just created everything and set it off in the corner, right? That, that's how people think sometimes. Oh, yeah, there must be a creator, but he probably just set everything in motion and then kind of just left it to our to itself. We we reject that. We say no. God not only created everything, but that he actually wants to interact with his creation, right? Which is actually a logical conclusion. Uh, whenever somebody creates something, uh, n- nobody ever makes something and then literally just sets it aside and doesn't think about it anymore after that, right? <laughs> be like, What would be the point of creating that type of a thing? So if creation itself points to the fact that there is a creator, we also believe that that creator actually wants to interact with us, that he wants to have a relationship with us. And because God wants to have a relationship with us, he's communicated with us. And he's done this in many ways, but he's communicated with us in a very clear way that we can understand. And uh, we see that as being the Bible, his word. He's given us the Bible, which is his word, and we want everything that we do here to be shaped from a worldview that comes from reading the scriptures, right? So so the scriptures are going to be absolutely essential for the way that we see the world, the way that we uh, think about what is right and what is wrong, the way that we think about how we should live, how we should do church, all this kind of stuff. We want it to be rooted in what God has clearly spoken to us in his word. We want to conform our lives to what he says, rather than trying to conform God into this image of what we want him to be, okay? So we believe that one of the essential things about being a Christian is that you really lay down your own rights, and and you no longer are the person that has authority over your own life, but you give it to God, and we see that God has spoken authoritatively in his Word. So we really value the Bible because we really value God. So if you continue to stick around with us here at H2O, and I hope that you do, uh, my goal is going to be to really help you note God's Word and to live it out. Like, we have a couple distinctive values we have. I'm not going to go through all of them as a church, but uh, two of the first ones are that we want to be a church that's God-exalting, and we want to be a church that's biblically formed. And we see those two things going hand-in-hand together, right? We exalt God best when we worship Him in a way that He has taught us He wants to be worshiped when we understand him rightly in the way that he has revealed himself to us in his word. So these beliefs shape a lot of, of uh, about the way that we do things here. We're going to get into his word together a lot. Uh, usually what we're going to do on a Sunday morning is read a text together and, and then just kind of walk through it. And, and my, my goal every time I preach is just to like get you guys closer to God by just bringing his word before you. I actually want my voice to kind of be soft. I want his word to, to be what speaks loudly. And even though the Bible was completed, that the, uh, the last of the scriptures were completed about 2,000 years ago, we believe that God's word is still living and active and has a ton to say to us in our world today. And so... We often preach through, the book, uh, through books of the Bible here, and I'm very excited about the one that we're going to be starting today. Um, the words of this book have changed the lives of countless numbers of people. You might argue it's, it's the most influential book, or certainly one of the most influential books of the Bible. Uh, the great reformer Martin Luther had this to say about it. He says, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel It is well worth a Christian's while, not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. I hope that you feel the same way that Martin did, because we're going to be meditating on it a lot over the course of this year. Um, And by the way, when he wrote that, he he calls it a letter, because that's actually exactly what a lot of the books of the Bible are. Uh, I don't know how familiar you might be with the Bible. Uh, When you pick it up, you see that it's all bound together into one nice, neat little book. But the reality is, the Bible is divided up into 66 different books that were written by at least 40 different authors over hundreds of years, okay? Uh, They've all been compiled together now for what we say, hey, this is what God has authoritatively spoke. And so that's why your Bible is compiled the way that it is. But there's all sorts of different literature that's making that up. And the New Testament... Quite a few of those things that we call books are actually letters. Letters that were written, uh, most of them by Paul, but some of them by other people, uh, to churches or individuals, uh, sometimes addressing uh, issues that were going on in those churches, sometimes laying out just more general points of doctrine that are really helpful for us to know. And these letters would then be circulated around to other churches as well. The particular letter that we're going to be diving into today and for the rest of this year is the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. Romans. Now, this letter was likely written around the year 57 A.D., which would have been about 30 years after the time that Jesus uh, was crucified and resurrected. It is the longest of the letters in the New Testament. And as a matter of fact, it is the longest surviving letter that we have from the ancient world. Uh, writing letters was not as easy back then. It was expensive. There was no uh, mail system. So if you wrote a letter, you had to have somebody that was physically going to go and, and take it there. So we actually don't have a ton of long uh, letters that, that we have from the ancient world. Uh, certainly not a bunch that survive. So Romans is um, for the, when I say ancient world, that means before the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, it's the longest letter that we have surviving from that time, and it is absolutely packed with truth about who God is, who we are, and how he wants us to live. The gospel is laid out super clearly and thoroughly in this letter. It's brilliantly argued, and if you let the truth of it sink into your heart and mind, I believe that you will be truly transformed. Um, I've consistently told people uh, that I've spoken to that Romans is my favorite book of the Bible, and the reality is I love all of the Bible, and it's so beautiful, but um, the the way in which the gospel is laid out in Romans is just really masterful, and I'm excited for us to work through that as a church here together this year. So today we're just going to be looking at the first seven verses, uh, but I would encourage you if you can find the time this week, or at least at some point in this semester, to actually sit down and read the entire book of Romans in one sitting. Now, I know I just told you it's the longest letter we have from the ancient world. It'll probably take you at least an hour to do it. Um, but if you, if you sit down and do that, you are going to get kind of the big picture view of what's going on there, right? And if anyone wrote you a letter, that's the same thing that you would do. If I wrote you a letter, you probably wouldn't sit down and read it piece by piece by piece by piece over the course of... 30 weeks or whatever. Um, you, you would read it all at once, right? Now, There's a ton of value in going through what Paul has to say here, piece by piece by piece by piece, and that's what we're going to do on Sundays. Um, I thought about the idea of us just coming and reading here together, but I thought that a lot of people wouldn't like that. So what I encourage you to do is uh, find some time this week, or at least over the course of this semester, to sit down and actually just read Romans together in one sitting so you can get a big picture idea of what's going on, and that'll help you as we go through the little pieces together. So uh, with that being said, we're just going to do the intro today. The first seven verses, uh, they're the kind of verses that people oftentimes just kind of skip over when they're reading these letters, but they're actually packed with foundational truths. So I'm going to pray and then we'll dive into the scripture. Um, God, we love you so much. And I thank you that you love us. Um, God, that your love for us is greater than anything we can actually understand. I think of that song that we were just singing, I've never known a love like yours. Um, and God, I know that's true. I thank you that uh, you love us enough to give us life, to create us, and not just to leave us as orphans, God, but that uh, you call us into relationship with yourself, into a really close relationship with yourself, so much so that you, you want us to be your very children. Um, and God, I pray that we wouldn't be people that take that for granted, but that we would really just rejoice over that truth, that we'd be people that are shaped by our relationships with you. So God, we just pray that you'd be with us here this morning. We want your word to speak deeply into our hearts. I pray that you'd help us to remove any sort of distractions that might be in our lives right now, worries or anxieties that we came in here with. God, I pray that you would just let those melt away right now and help us to focus in on what you have to say. We love you and pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to Romans 1. If not, that's fine. I'm going to have the text on the screen there. But here we go. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's just the introduction. As I said, a lot of time these are uh, things that people kind of skip over, maybe because it seems like a run-on sentence. There's so many commas in that you don't want to deal with kind of figuring out what he's actually trying to say. Um, So I'm going to do my best to, to help organize it for you a little bit here. But in this intro, Paul is actually laying out some really foundational truths that are going to be important for us if we're going to understand the rest of the letter to the Romans. And there's really four things here uh, that we need to understand. We need to see the messenger, like who the messenger is, what the message is, who the audience is, and then the blessing that comes with this message. So we're just going to work through those four things here this morning. We'll start with the messenger because that's what Paul did. The first verse there, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. In the very first line of this letter, Paul identifies himself as the author, but we have to ask, who is this guy named Paul? Now, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard about this guy a lot. Um, If not, I want to uh, fill you in on who he is, and if you are already familiar with him, I still think uh, it's valuable for us to just kind of rehash the amazing testimony that this guy really has. You see, Paul has an incredible story. He uh, used to go by the name Saul, which would have been his Hebrew name. He was a Jewish man uh, that was born in the city of Tarsus, and he became a Pharisee. So Pharisees were a very strict Jewish uh, religious sect. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that these are the people that Jesus are most consist- is most consistently getting in arguments with. Okay? They knew the law really, really well. They were very zealous about keeping it externally. Uh, they looked like they really had their acts together. They were very intelligent people, and uh, they did not like the fact that Jesus came in kind of disrupting the status quo of power that they had, and that he was bringing a different understanding of the Old Testament than what they had. So eventually, uh, they played a role in, in helping to get Jesus crucified by the Roman government. Well, Jesus, of course, rose from the dead, and and killing him didn't do anything to stop his message. As a matter of fact, that was the very reason that Jesus came, and Jesus knew that that had to happen. So when he rose from the dead, his followers just continued to go on and preach this message about Jesus. Now, you can imagine how that would upset a zealous Pharisee like Paul. Right? It's like they literally killed this guy Jesus because they hated him so much trying to stop his message, but now there's this rumor circulating that Jesus has risen from the dead, and it's like, my goodness, we can't stop this even with killing this guy, right? And so what Paul does is, is he goes around, and he's trying to persecute Christians as aggressively as he possibly can. We see the first Christian martyr that's recorded in the Bible name is named Stephen, who's stoned to death. Uh, Paul was there giving his approval for it. And after that, he goes to the high priest and says, hey, I want to do everything I can to stamp out this Christian movement. Let me go off to this other city called Damascus, and I want to search out and find the Christians there so I can bring them back here to Jerusalem so that they can be punished as well. So he's kind of going on a search and destroy mission. And as Paul does this, uh, he's literally blinded by a light from heaven as he's on the road. And uh, what happens is it's Jesus that appears to him. And here's a voice that says Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul says, "Who are you, Lord?" He says, "I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting." And with this Paul's life radically transforms. As he has an encounter with Jesus, he becomes a completely different man. He's led to Damascus. Uh, There's a Christian named Ananias that God sends to go and pray for Paul. He regains his sight. He's baptized. He receives the Holy Spirit. And as he does this, he is a completely new man, which is exactly in line with what Jesus teaches about us becoming a new creation. Jesus taught that no one could enter the kingdom unless he was reborn. Well, we see this rebirth happen in the life of Paul. And so he goes from being this guy that was zealously persecuting Christians and even going to other cities trying to to bind them up and bring them back to Jerusalem to now going out into the streets and preaching the gospel. Now, you can imagine how this would upset his old friends that hated Jesus and were trying to stop his message and now all of a sudden one of their brightest stars that was most aggressive in persecuting Christians has become one. Well, they couldn't stop Paul And uh, God's Holy Spirit was on him in a very, very powerful way. Um, As a matter of fact, God gave Paul incredible fruit as he would go around preaching the gospel, not just to Jews, but primarily, actually, to Gentiles. He started taking the message of God to lots of places that it had never gone before. God worked miracles through Paul, but primarily, the biggest thing God did was work powerfully through the preaching that he had, as many, many people came to believe that Jesus really was the Son of God, that he had been crucified for his sins, and that he did raise from the dead. And so Paul would sail around the Mediterranean Sea, uh, planting all these new churches, and as soon as the gospel would take root in one city, he'd raise up these believers, and then he'd go on to another city and start another church and keep repeating this process. But as he did this, he had concern for these churches that he had planted and left behind. He wanted to check in and, and continue to pastor them as best he could. And so he would write these letters, and these letters that he would write back to these cities are what comprise quite a bit of the New Testament, Now, Romans is actually an exception. Romans is a letter, but Rome is one of the only letters to the churches we have that Paul had actually not visited that church in Rome. Uh, It was planted by other people. We aren't actually sure who, uh, but it existed before Paul even got there. Most likely, it was started by uh, people that were Jewish who became Christians at Pentecost and then took the gospel back to Rome, but we're not 100% sure. But nonetheless, with all of this, Paul started to gain incredible uh, influence as a, as a Christian, right? Like, he's written a ton of our New Testament. As a matter of fact, he started to be regarded as an apostle, just like one of the 12 guys that is actually with Jesus during his earthly ministry. God specifically chose and elevated Paul to this level. When, uh, when God was speaking to Ananias, telling him, which was the guy that went and prayed for Paul to regain his sight, the guy was very scared to go and do that, as you can imagine, right? He knows this guy's persecuting Christ. He says, hey, I want you to go and pray for this guy. And this is what God says about Paul. He says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So in the introduction here, Paul uh, rightly points out that God called him to be an apostle. That word means sent one. And it carries with it a special authority uh, to, to preach the word of God. But despite the success and influence that Paul had, he still primarily identified himself as simply a humble servant of Jesus. He understood clearly and accurately that no matter how much influence or power a Christian has in this world, he is still simply a servant of the King. And that's why I love that the first word Paul uses to describe himself in the letter to the Romans is servant. The Christian lays down his or her own will and desires and replaces them with the will and desires of Christ. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he wrote this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's powerful language, right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Paul understood this. He was not his own anymore. He had given himself completely to Jesus, which is really what every Christian is called to do. You see, we'll see over and over again that the things that Paul teaches are simply echoing the things that our Lord Jesus said. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Being a Christian entails self-denial. Self-denial and following Jesus. We lay our own desires down, and we pick up his. You don't get to be king of your own life anymore if you're a Christian. Instead, you make Jesus king. You take the humble attitude of a servant who puts the will of his master above his own, and that's what we see even in this great and famous figure like Paul. Now, The great thing about this idea of becoming a servant, though, and laying your life down and and self-denial and picking up your cross and following Jesus is that this master has your best interest in mind. You know, it might sound crazy to willingly decide to give up control of your own life and instead be a servant of Jesus, but the reality is that Jesus knows what's best and he offers what's best. You see, right after making the statement that Jesus did about self-denial and following him, this is what he says right after that. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You see, Jesus offers what no one else can give. We can try and try and try as much as we can to gain this world, and so many of us spend our lives trying to do that. But the reality is, we're going to lose our lives at some point. There's one that can offer us eternal life, and that is Jesus. He says, if you lay down your life for me, I will give you true life. True, eternal, everlasting life. You know, we, I talked about that some yes uh, last week with the idea of of living water, and we'll get more into that as we continue to explore the gospel over the course of this year. But I pray that we'd be people that have the same attitude that Paul does, that we'd be humble servants of our king, that the first thing that, that uh, the first word that would describe us is servant, right? How awesome is that? Like, that's what the church should be. First word. And it sounds crazy, but guys, actually, this is the most freeing thing in the world. Like, there's something that's very freeing about understanding that you are not the most important person on the planet. And none of us would like consciously say, oh yeah, I think I'm the most important person on the planet, right? It's it's rather just the default that we naturally operate out of, okay? Think about it, like our thoughts are always revolving around ourselves, our desires are always revolving around ourselves, like you're the most important person in your life, naturally, right? Unless something comes in and changes that, that is the natural course of action, that, that you're going, the way you're going to think, the way you're going to live is that I'm the most important person. When Jesus comes and, and we, we come into a relationship with him, we're reborn, we become this new creation, we start to understand that life is not really about us. It's about Jesus, and there's something that's actually very freeing about that. You know, in our natural selfishness, we think we're the most important, but Jesus comes to help us realize who actually is the most important, and we get to live a life serving him. And so Paul exemplified this in an amazing way. He went through so much struggle, so much toil, so many difficulties, but yet in him you see this consistent joy, because he knew that he was doing something that mattered for eternity, and in that he got to experience fellowship with the the king of the universe. And so we know about the messenger, but what about the message that he came to bring? He says that he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and who was declared to be the son of God in power, According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The message that Paul is bringing is the gospel of God. Now, the word gospel literally means good news. And it's the message that Paul will go on to explain in detail in the rest of his letter, but he gives us a little bit of a synopsis about it right here. And if you uh, come to show, you're going to hear this message over and over and over and over again. I try and make it my point to preach it every single week. Why? Because it's the center of everything. Like, everything in the scripture is relating back to this idea, and quite simply, the gospel is the message that God made a way for things to be set right for people to be brought back into right relationship with him. And this was done through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In, in one of his other letters that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, explaining what the gospel is. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. He says, this is what's of first importance. This is what I received. This is the gospel that I've continually brought, that Jesus died for our sins and that he was raised from the dead. And what does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? You see, this is the simple reality that you and I are guilty of sin before a holy God. And this holy God promises that he is going to punish all sin. And that's good because someday God is going to set all things right. He's going to restore the brokenness of this world. But in that, he's going to do it thoroughly. And because he's a good judge, all sin will be punished. But guess what? Because God loves us, he wanted to make a way for us to be forgiven. Now, a just judge can't simply just overlook the sin and act like it didn't happen. But what he can do is allow it to be paid for by someone else. And so when the scriptures say that Jesus Christ died for our sins, what it's saying is that God literally took on flesh, died on the cross, and and, and suffered the penalty for our sins. We deserve death for our sins, but Jesus took it in our place. And when he rose three days later, he showed that he had actually conquered sin and death. And he was giving a foreshadowing of what will happen to all that will put their faith in him, that we would have eternal life. Jesus is actually what's called the first fruits of that. So just as Jesus rose from the dead, all that put their faith in Christ will raise from the dead to be with God for eternity. He's kind of the, the, the prototype that, that shows us that. And th- this is the gospel message. And, and Paul took pains to help you see that this is not something new, but rather that it was something that God had planned all along from the very beginning. You saw in that First Corinthians passage, he said uh, that this was done according to the Scriptures. Right here in the Romans intro, what did he say? That it was uh, promised beforehand. He, he knows that this gospel was prophesied long ago. It's not just a New Testament idea. He's alerting to this that this is something that was promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And once again, Paul is simply in line with his King Jesus. You know, shortly after Jesus rose from the dead, he took a walk with two guys that were really bummed about all the events that had just happened. They were hoping that this figure, Jesus, was going to be the guy that was going to redeem Israel. They had this idea that there was a Messiah, this person that was going to be a Savior of Israel and bring in this era of prosperity. And, And there was a lot of excitement about Jesus amongst many of the Israelites, Uh, But it turns out that Jesus was crucified, and and they were sad about it. They're like, man, our hopes were dashed. So Jesus is walking along with these guys, and they didn't recognize him. And as he hears what they're saying, he, he says this, "'O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory?' And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, so what Jesus was saying is, guys, I know you're upset that this Jesus guy was crucified. He's he's Jesus saying this. But, But the scriptures told us that this had to happen. And he goes and he starts to unfold all of this for them. Now, I really wish that Luke would have recorded the rest of that conversation. That would have been awesome. Unfortunately, he didn't. Um, So I'm going to have to do my best to just point out to you a few places uh, where we see that the gospel was promised beforehand in the scriptures. And guys, I could probably spend several hours doing this. I'm not going to. I'm just going to point out a few key places. Uh, But if you want to talk more about this, the gospel in the Old Testament and how it's all pointing forward to Jesus and what he would do, I would love to sit down and talk with you about that. But to start, I want to take you all the way back to Genesis just to show you this, right? So right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, uh, God had put them in the garden of Eden. They ate the fruit from this tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, and with this, sin enters into the world, and a curse comes along with it. And we see God would curse the serpent who deceived them, who was Satan. He would curse Adam, he would curse Eve, but the serpent's curse came first. And see what God says here. Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise of the gospel right after sin enters into the world. We see that this serpent is cursed, but what I want to point out to you is this idea of the offspring of the woman and what's promised that's going to happen there, right? It says that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, getting bruised on the heel sucks, like that hurts, I don't want to get bruised on my heel, Um, but getting bruised on the head is a lot worse, right? Some translations, it's the same word here, but, but some would actually use the word crushed, And there's this idea that uh, that, that with this enmity, that's that's strife, that's hatred, that's discord, that's being put between this offspring of the woman and Satan. And we see that there's going to be this battle here. But ultimately, what's prophesied that's going to happen? That the offspring of the woman is going to overcome this serpent. You see, he's going to get the offspring of the woman on the heel, but the offspring of the woman is going to get him on the head. And this is the first promise of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the one who was the offspring of the woman, born of the Virgin Mary, would end up crushing Satan as he went to the cross and ultimately will complete that when final judgment comes. We see that God wasn't just going to leave us in our sin, but that he was going to redeem us, that he was going to defeat this enemy of ours, and that he was going to do it through the offspring of the woman. We see later in Jeremiah chapter 31 that God promises this idea of a new covenant. And I know covenant is not a term that we use a lot in, in our English today, but uh, covenant is simply a, like a, a binding relationship, okay? So God had this covenant that he made with Israel, and uh, it was all based on this law that they had. So Moses gave it to him. They were supposed to follow all these laws that they had. But God promised through one of their prophets that a day was coming where he was going to give them a new covenant. There was going to be a new kind of relationship that he would bring them into. Here's what he says. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. For the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, there's this prophecy that a new covenant is coming. And this covenant's not going to be like the old one, it's not going to be about uh, keeping all of these laws that they were unable to keep. This one, God is actually going to write it on our hearts. He's going to change us from the inside out. Are you hearing some of the New Testament language? The idea of being reborn and becoming a new creation, right? This, This is what, it's pointing forward towards the New Testament and what Jesus was bringing in. We see here that this covenant is going to bring about forgiveness of sins. as He forgives their iniquity and remembers their sin no more. And we already talked about how Jesus died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. We see here that this covenant with God is going to do something to change the inside of his people. And how is he going to do that? Well, let's go to the prophet Ezekiel, also several hundred years before the time of Jesus. Ezekiel said this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see a day is coming where God says he would put his spirit in his people. What does that sound like? Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit as God comes and gives the gift of his spirit to his people. When you become a Christian, he literally comes and puts his spirit within you. And the spirit starts to transform us. And we see as Christians, this is, this is why we start to be conformed more into to people that God wants us to be. Because he literally changes us from the inside out. This is awesome stuff, right? Like all of the, the prophets, I, and I told you, I could spend hours doing this, but I, I could take you to prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that's showing that something is coming, something big that's, that's going to be game-changing, and that's exactly what Jesus brought in. He's the one that brought in this new covenant. He's the one that can sprinkle clean water and give us a new heart. You saw, see, Paul said that this was the gospel concerning God's Son, and that is exactly who Jesus is. He forgives us his sin and makes us new creations. Look at the words that Jesus himself spoke, actually, about this. Matthew 26, 26 to 28. This is when Jesus uh, was sharing his last supper with his disciples shortly before he was crucified. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and he, gave, and he had given thanks. He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, when Jesus' disciples heard that, they would have thought back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah promised that there was this new covenant that was coming and that with it there was going to be this forgiveness of sins. And this is exactly what Jesus said. My blood is being poured out for that. I'm instituting that new covenant right here. This was promised long beforehand. And as my blood is poured out, this is what makes it possible for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, he was bruised on the heel. His blood was poured out as he hung on the cross. But in doing so, he crushed the serpent on the head, defeated the curse of sin and death, and it was proven when he rose from the dead. The resurrection gives us confidence that we can truly believe that Jesus is indeed the one that has the power to bring about this new covenant, this new relationship that Jesus promised. Guys, this is the gospel message. This is what Paul devoted his life to. This is what I have devoted my life to. And this is what I hope changes everything for you. Because you know, the gospel really does affect everything. It gives us hope for tomorrow, right? We see that there's an opportunity for eternal life. We know that as time marches on, all of us are ultimately moving towards death. Like everything that we accumulate in this world, we can't take it with us. But with the gospel, we see that uh, it doesn't just have to end here. We actually have the opportunity to live for eternity with the Lord. But it's not just a, oh, great, that's great news for the future. It is great news for the future. But it's also great news for now. You see, the gospel gives us purpose. Because now, as we work, we actually get to be partnered with God in his mission to set all things right in this world. And as we go and we're messengers of the gospel, we get to partake in doing work that actually has eternal significance. Like, we get to share something with people that can affect their eternity, rather than just continue to build our bank accounts or our our platform or whatever. And you know, the gospel gives us fellowship with God. He talks about putting his spirit within us. (laughs) Christianity is so much more than a list of rules, guys. It breaks my heart when people think it's just a list of rules or it's just about doing good to people. Christianity is about being brought into fellowship with God himself. And that's made possible by Christ on the cross. And as you have fellowship with God, this really does start to change everything in your life. Like, I I can tell you that, but you, you can't really understand what I'm saying until you experience it. But as you have fellowship with God, he really does start to change you from the inside out. He changes everything about the perspective that you have on this world. You're able to start weathering storms that would have been so much more difficult before, right? And Paul, our friend here, gives us such a great example of that. Where this guy was in jail and beaten and shipwrecked and stuff all the time and he always had joy. Why? Because he was able to live with such an eternal perspective because he had fellowship with God who strengthened him through all these trials, And you know, not only does the gospel give us fellowship with God, but it gives us fellowship with each other. We're united together as God's children in one family. And so what happens is it brings us together into a relationship that's really deep, right? Like the church is supposed to be more than just a collection of people that listen to some guy preach on Sunday mornings and sing songs together. It's a family of people that are bonded together in love. And we serve each other and we care for each other. And you see, the gospel humbles us and brings us together as we realize that none of us has anything to bring to the table to impress God, right? Like the gospel levels all of us and helps us all see our common need for a savior. And and as we go through the letter of the Romans, as we continue to preach that the rest of this year, you're going to see that. Because it seems that there was some uh, racial tension, actually, that was probably going on in this church. And that Paul is continually trying to help them realize that they are all brought together by the same need that has the same solution, which is the gospel. And so that kind of moves me on to what I want to talk about with our audience you know, Paul talks about how he wants to, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, God's name, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So he's writing to those that are in Rome. But we see that Paul has a desire to bring all nations to obedience to God, Now, in Old Testament times, uh, the Jews lived as a a people that were set apart and kind of had this special relationship with God. It talked about this covenant they had that was based on his law. Well, um, with this, they they got kind of used to to being this special and set apart people, but from the beginning, they were always supposed to be blessed to be a blessing, right? Like, we see this all the way back to Abraham, who was the forefather of that nation, that God said, I'm that you will be a blessing, And and so Israel was supposed to be a light amongst the nations that would would start directing people towards the Lord. And all along, God had the plan to bring all nations to himself. And so this is simply what Paul wants to do. I I won't take you through all the Old Testament passages that could show that. Once again, if you want to meet with me and talk about that, I would love to. But uh, what what Paul sees here is that God wants his name praised among all the nations. And once again, he's right in line with his King Jesus. Because what did Jesus say? Matthew 28, 18, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Make disciples where? Of all nations. God is way too awesome to receive glory from only one group of people. He created all nations, and he wants glory from all nations. So it's for the sake of his name that the gospel needs to go forth to all of them. And this is why Paul continually took it into uncharted territory. And what better place than Rome, pretty much the capital of the world at that time. Now, this idea that all people could be brought into the family of God and not just Jews, that was actually a really revolutionary concept for a lot of the Jews. And it was uh, difficult for, for some of them to accept that they no longer had an exclusive relationship with the Lord. When you read the New Testament, uh, if you start to look for this, you'll actually see consistently uh, that settling racial tensions and bringing different kinds of people together was a major challenge and a major objective that, that Paul and the other apostles had. You see this all over the place, and it's a major theme in Romans. In fact, we have good reason to believe that uh, racial or at least cultural tensions were a big contributing factor to why the letter of the Romans needed to be written in the first place. So, One thing we forget, I think, a lot of time is that all of the first Christians were Jews, okay? So when I say Jew, um, some people get confused sometimes because there's the religion of Judaism and then there's also the ethnicity, right, of Jewish people. So Jesus was ethnically Jewish And he even practiced the Jewish religion. Now, what we believe as Christians is that the Jewish religion was simply the foundation for what we now call Christianity, right? So I would look at all of those prophecies that I took you through and many more that would say, hey, this is all pointing forward to this development that will happen where a new covenant comes. So we would say that, uh, I I would say that I'm practicing the same religion as Abraham, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or any of these Old Testament people, right? I just live at a different time, so, so it looks a little bit different because how things have unfolded over time. But we would say it's one faith, it's the same thing. The Jewish religion today would be where people would say, no, we don't believe that that new covenant has come yet, and we're just going to continue doing all the same things the way that we used to. So that's why Christianity and Judaism are seen as two different religions. But at the time that that Jesus lived, and, and as the early church was starting to be born, all of the first Christians were people that practiced the Jewish religion, because that was the foundation of what would become what we now know as Christianity. All of the first Christians were Jews. The early church was completely Jewish at its start. Now, God made it very clear, though, that he wanted us to make disciples of all nations. So it started to quickly spread to the Gentiles as well, as God's Holy Spirit came to them, and many, many came to faith. So the church in Rome was likely started by some ethnically Jewish Christians, but they undoubtedly brought in Gentile Christians as well. Gentiles are just non-Jewish people. Now, something unfortunate happened for the Jews in that the Emperor Claudius, who was the emperor in Rome uh, from, I think it was like 41 AD to like 54 AD, um, he expelled all the Jews out of Rome. He didn't like them. He wanted them gone. Uh, He thought they were causing disturbances. So he literally kicked them all out of Rome and they had to go find other places to live. So with this, what happens to the church in Rome? Well, it becomes an exclusively Gentile church because there are no Jews left in Rome anymore. They've all been kicked out. Claudius would die a few years later and the Jews would start to come back to Rome. And uh, with that, they need to be reintegrated back into this church that has become exclusively Gentile. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever like left somewhere and then come back a a while later, maybe a few years later, and you realize that everything is like way different than it was when you left? Some of you are going to feel that way about when you visit home, (laughs) Uh, you start to go back to home. I I went to college in Bowling Green. I loved it there. I still enjoy going back and visiting. But when I go back and visit, it has a totally different feel from, it, from how it did when I was there as a student. And uh, that, that had to be how these Jewish Christians likely felt as they came back into this church that had become very, very, had a very Gentile flavor to it at this point. And, and so it seems, as I'm reading between the lines in Romans, that Paul was, was trying to help them work out some of these tensions that they had and helping them see that they were all unified together as the people of God. But we'll see that as we continue on in the letter. But as I said, there's a, this is a 2,000-year-old letter, but it's still relevant for us today. Because aren't we today still dividing ourselves over racial and cultural differences constantly? I mean, I, I feel like I see this happening all of the time. And the, the gospel is telling us, guys, it, it doesn't matter what race or culture or ethnicity or anything you are, God wants to bring us together as one people. And so we need to hear this letter today as Christians. We need the same encouragement and the same gospel-mindedness that Paul was trying to give to the Jews and Gentiles of that day. We need the same thing for, for our many cultures that are brought here together in the United States today. So the reality is we are blended together into one family. And family is the right word. Because God loves these people that Paul's writing to. He says to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Man, what a beautiful truth it is that God loves us and calls us to be saints. Now, saint is usually a word that people use as for like a super Christian or something. You know, I know uh, sometimes people think, "Oh, you have to like work miracles to become a saint or something like that." That's just biblically not true. Christians are referred to as saints in the Bible. The whole church here in Rome is referred to as saints. You can look at 1 Corinthians, it's the same deal. He calls them all saints. What does that mean? A saint is simply a holy one. It's one that's been set apart. And if you are a Christian, that's you. You have been set apart for Christ. He has made you holy, not because you're good, but because he's good. He literally gave all of his perfection and righteousness to you. And so you don't become a saint by performing something or doing a miracle or having these great works. You become a saint simply by... Being unified with Jesus, the true Holy One, and so I hope that you will start to see yourself that way—that you 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 cannot make yourself holy, but Jesus is the one that has already made you holy through faith in Him. And finally, as Paul closes his introduction, he says, "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Paul loves to use this combination, uh, grace and peace. And I love that he does that because grace is getting something that we don't deserve. And the love of God, the forgiveness of God, fellowship with him, his Holy Spirit, all these kind of things, guys, these are gifts by the grace of God that we get. We don't deserve them. We didn't earn them. God gives them to us by his grace. But because he gives us fellowship with him by his grace, that gives us peace. You see, grace and peace are linked together we can have peace because we have grace. We don't have to worry all the time about oh my goodness like does God love me? Am I performing well enough to make God like me? Because right that that is a recipe for a very stressful life. The beauty of the gospel is says, yes, God loves you. He loved you even while you were still a sinner. And he proved that when Jesus died on the cross for you. And as he's given you grace, he's brought you into his family as a child. So even as we misstep and as we mess up, we fall into sin, whatever it may be, we care about those things and we repent of that and we fight that. But we know that he still loves us and we have peace that we are his, his children. Guys, this is huge. The, the grace of God should be such a peace-giving thing in your life. If God has given us So great a gift is salvation and fellowship with him. Shouldn't this grace give us peace in all other areas of our lives as well? When you really start to understand the magnitude of God's grace and his love for you, it can give you a peace that starts to permeate everything, not just fears about what's gonna happen to you after you die, but even things about like, does God see what's going on in my life and care about me, right? Jesus tried to point this out to us in Matthew 6 when he, in the Sermon on the Mount, he told people, look at how God cares for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Like, doesn't he care so much more about you? As you start to see the the gracious love of God that he has for us, this should give the Christian peace. That we don't have to be people that live in fear and anxiety all the time. Because guys, we live in a very uncertain world. We don't know what's going to come. It's easy to get scared. It's easy to worry. It's easy to get anxious. But when you are united with the one that sits above all of it, the true king of the universe, the one that's sovereign over everything, the one that's powerful over everything, you know that no matter what happens, he is with you. And so later on in this letter, Paul would write, if God is for us, who can be against us? And as you have that, that gives you a deep peace. So as I bring this to a close here, I just want you to think about how to apply all that we've learned from this little introduction to Romans today. That you think about Paul, the the messenger of this gospel, right? That in seeing that, we would see a God that transforms even the worst sinner, right? Paul, Paul said that God actually chose him to display how much grace he has. He says, he took me, the chief of sinners, to prove that he's willing to save anybody. This persecutor of the church that God would turn into a messenger of the gospel. Maybe you need to hear that. And just realize that, man, you are not too far gone. The friend or the family member that you are praying for is not too far gone. Paul, I can guarantee you on his way to Damascus, did not expect to become a Christian. But he did. And so maybe we just need to, to remember that we serve a God that transforms people. Maybe we need to to be struck by the humble attitude that Paul had, right? This is a guy that like worked miracles and planted churches all around the world in places that they weren't and, and had all of these people clamoring to hear him and yet he identified himself primarily as a servant. Man, let's have that same kind of humble attitude. Maybe we need to be people that just think more about this message, this gospel message that we're diving into and all of the power that it brings to transform every aspect of your life. Just just meditate on, man, how does the gospel truth affect everything about the way I spend my time, the, the thoughts that I have, the way I spend my money, the way I go about my classwork, everything. I guarantee you as you meditate on this, there are ways that you should be able to see that the gospel impacts that. Maybe we need to think about the audience, you know, the, the, the fact that God loved the Roman church and he called them to be Saints and that he he loves you, and he's called you to be a saint, a holy one that's set apart to be with him. We need to think about how God has called all nations together to himself for his glory. And we need to stop squabbling about our own glory and our own pride and our own ambitions and come together just to worship our king. Or maybe you need to let that last blessing just fill your mind, the grace-filled message of the gospel that brings peace. You know, no matter what kind of stress you're under, God can give you peace in the midst of that. <laughs> this hasn't been an easy week for me, actually. There's it's been a lot of crazy stuff happening. It's been a stressful week. A lot of things have happened out of my control. I'm going to be attending two funerals this week. Um, there's uh, an issue that, that came up with a friend yesterday that, that uh, has grieved me, and um, yeah, I'm running on about two or three hours of sleep right now. The in the midst of any of that craziness, God is able to give you peace in that. This is not just theory. Like, like person after person after person has experienced that. Paul was a great example of it. Uh, there, there have been many other Christians that, that have gone to their deaths in peace, knowing that the Lord will care for them. And, and guys, I, I know there are people in this room that could testify to the same thing I'm saying, that the gospel brings a kind of peace that nothing else can. And so, if you uh, need peace in your life, if, if you need to, to come to a deeper understanding of God's grace and how it brings there something, then, man, I would encourage you, go get prayer. We're gonna have people at the back today that pray with you, and you, maybe you're, you're filled with anxiety, and you just need to, to let the truth of the gospel soak over you to give you a more eternal perspective and bring peace, then, great, I encourage you to go get prayer for that. Maybe you're someone that says, like, man, I... I don't think I've really known the gospel until today. Like, I think I was trying to, to save myself. And and I just now started to understand that Jesus is really the one that died for my sins to forgive me. And I want to have a relationship with him. If that's you, like, go get prayer. We'd love to talk to you about that. Um, But as we enter into this next time of worship, I, I hope that you guys just have an awesome interaction with the Lord and we're able to worship him together and, and give him the praise that he deserves. So let's pray. Um, God, we love you, and I thank you uh, that you love us as much as you do. Um, I thank you for your grace and for the peace that it brings us. God, I thank you that <coughs> you, uh, you transform, Lord, and I know that uh, there are people that need to be transformed that are here today. God, that we have friends uh, that need to be transformed, we have family that needs to be transformed, God, I pray that you'd help us to be uh, bold messengers of the gospel. God, let us, let us be people that carry the gospel in, in our hearts and in our minds. Let it be something that, that transforms us from the inside out. And, um, Yeah, Lord, I just pray that you'd, you'd make us people that are just saturated with you, God. We love you a lot. Uh, You're worthy of all of our praise, and we could never give you what you deserve, God, but we thank you for the opportunity we have to give you what we can. Um, So we love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. And stand up. We're going to sing a song that might be new to you. Um, If it is, feel free to just sit and listen to it and pray through it, whatever would be best for you. Um, If it's not, obviously you can sing along, but I'm excited to sing this because I think that it does a really good job of demonstrating the gospel and specifically the idea of rescue that happens within that. Um, And so, yeah, if you want to celebrate the gospel today, that's awesome.